Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Oh, yes. Hello, my friends. And welcome to this, another edition of the Underdog Football Show. My name is Josh Norris. His name is Hayden Wings. Hayden, we do multiple shows of this every single week. Four, to be exact, every single day here, 1230 Eastern, Monday through Thursday. Uh, I learn something new about you every single time. Some good, some questionable, but I'm happy to get to know you more and more as we go along this journey together. What did I spill the beans on now? <laughs> I don't want to reveal our Slack chats. Um, oh, is this about the Harry Potter? How about, uh, I've never seen Harry Potter. That's totally oh, we, fine. I don't care. We're, we're from totally different generations, it feels like. And we're really not when it comes to age groups and age brackets. But the fact that you have just missed the entire Harry Potter era and you've made it at this point, and I would say as, as a well-adjusted 27-year-old, mind-blowing to me. Absolutely mind-blowing. Did uh, the rest of America not go outside? Like, I feel like I'm Evan oh, Sills out here with on. hands in the dirt. I was outside playing wiffle ball. Did you ever play wiffle ball? Did all these people that are watching movies and TV shows and had time to read, did you guys go play wiffle ball? Do you guys go play stuff at the park? Or were, was it just inside and Game Boys all day? That's what I'm kind of confused about. Or you do all of it. Like, as a child, you emulate Ninja Turtles and Power Rangers at the playground and try to act out. I want to change my name to Tommy because I love the White Ranger so much. And then you move along to, you know, the the fantasy phase of Harry Potter, of Star Wars. I mean, it was kind of a transition in that period. And yes, you always have, you know, the original Xbox, the PlayStation 2, the Nintendo 64, the GameCube in your back pocket. I truly want to know, other than wiffle ball, what an 11, 12-year-old Hayden Winks was up to. First of all, the only fantasy that I was doing as a teenager was fantasy football, and that's why I get paid to do this now. I wasn't doing fantasy uh, Dungeon and Dragons. You know, there was, I was chasing girls. I was playing sports. <laughs> I was doing these type of things. Uh, I mean, this is outrageous. Uh, to be fair, um, pop culture stuff, watched a lot of Robin Big growing up, a lot of Jersey Shore. I watched a lot of Will Ferrell movies, a lot of Ace Ventura, and I went uh, to Arizona for during the summer. So I didn't do a lot of this stuff. I played a lot of Mario Kart. So, I'm down so, with Mario Kart, these type of things okay. I did. So as a child, me, yours truly, watching Nickelodeon, watching Legends of the Hidden Temple and Gullah Gullah Island. Instead, Hayden Winks was over there watching the Real World Road Rules Challenge and all those eliminates on MTV. I mean... Middle school, I would come home and elementary school, come home, have a bowl of cereal after after school, and then I would immediately put on Stump the Schwab. Remember Stump the, Stump the Schwab? And I, yeah. I would watch 
pardon the interruption every single day. I would watch those two things and then I would go and I would go play outside and I didn't have time for any, any of these Dungeons and Dragons stuff. If all of you out there want me and I pitch the show to verbally read a chapter of Harry Potter each week to Hayden Winks to close out the show, I think that would be, I am from a different generation. That's absolutely true. All right, Hayden, this is going to be a great show. We've delayed it long enough. They find wonderful people over at Underdog have unleashed the data of Best Ball Mania from last season. We've been trying to like pick and prod at pieces of, of takeaways we can use from last year's big tournament since it's just a singular one instance and how we can use them in this year for Best Ball Mania 2, which is massive. Million dollars to first, 250, 150, 100 as we go along, second, third, and fourth. You've written a column on underblog.underdogfantasy.com. Five tips to help people out there win a million dollars. I would even suggest five mistakes to avoid out there as well. Stop doing these things. I know you brought your big brain hat today. Shall we dive in? Let's do it. The first one I had, and this was, I think, pretty important, was just looking at when drafts took place and how those teams did in best ball. Because you hear this a lot that the teams drafted in September, when we have all the answers, would be doing better than the teams earlier in uh, the offseason, talking about July. So last year, Best Ball Mania 1 dropped mid-July. That's when drafts started. And if you look at the average uh, points scored in the regular season of Best Ball, there basically wasn't too much of a difference between teams drafted in July and September. The difference was about 5 to 10 points on average between uh, team drafting better in September versus in July when we have fewer answers. And that's really, really, really small when you're talking about the entire regular season of best ball. I do want to mention that I think that there is a, a little bit of something with uh, not having a full preseason last year, and that might right. skew the data a little bit. There were fewer injuries than normal. We had less training camp reports to kind of change our opinions on. So maybe this is going to change a little bit, but I don't think that it's like all of a sudden teams drafting in September are scoring like 300 more points than the teams drafted uh, after the draft. So um, I think that the best way to approach this would be to kind of just like sprinkle in your teams as we go throughout the off season, you're going to get different exposures to different players, stack prices changes throughout the off season. So I think that just in general, if you're doing a couple drafts per week throughout the entire off season, I think you're totally fine with that. I wouldn't be too concerned about doing too many drafts early and then getting screwed by September drafters. Okay, so I'm basically here to ask the questions out there of people listening to this or in the chat and all sorts of things. So to me, it's important because, one, you mentioned that the offseason last year was totally different, wholly different than any that we will ever see. In your opinion, and this cannot be necessarily based in fact, but you know, maybe an educated guess, how different might the information flow be this year? We'll have three Preseason games will have more open training camps potentially. And does that potentially impact these results that you found? So I think last year's data is probably the most skewed at, that we'll ever see for this type of stuff, just because there wasn't any of these training camp reports that were coming out because there was, was not nearly as much access to players in addition to fewer practices and fewer games in general. So I do think that uh, September drafters probably score a couple more points per game, but ultimately even to get to the playoffs, you're only playing against the 12 people in your draft and they, everyone has the same information. So really the right. only difference would be if you think that there's a difference in edge uh, for the fantasy playoffs, depending on when you draft. And I think that'd be so, so, so small 
that you'd probably just be overthinking things. I think that everyone should be uh, feel pretty comfortable drafting whenever. And like, like we said earlier, I, I think it's really just getting different exposures to different players. And I think that this is the best way. And I think just best ball in general, if you play dynasty, if you just play redraft, I think that best ball is the best way to get different exposures to different types of players, just because the format's so much different than all the rest of them. Yeah. We've come away with five concepts, five tips from this data Hayden has. This is the first one that drafting all during the summer and really, you know, expanding the portfolio of players. This is one way of doing it and might be, you know, less of a disadvantage. It might not change as much out there as people might just surmise just based on how much activity there is during that final week of August. So that's number one. So we'll just go straight into uh, what I'm calling the golden rule of best ball. This is a full column I have um, up on underblog right now. Drafting four wide receivers or by the end of round seven. So you have a little bit of wiggle room. Typically for me, that means you can draft two running backs, maybe an elite tight end. Maybe you can stack a quarterback with one of the wide receivers you drafted. But the big picture stuff is the RB dead zone, which you've probably heard about by now. You have this little gap between rounds three and round seven, where historically wide receivers have outperformed running backs by a wide margin. So that's the area where I want to be drafting wide receivers. If you aren't drafting wide receivers in this range, you're giving giving up a lot of expected points. Uh, This is kind of proven out with these historical win rate data for best ball, talking about just wide receivers, uh, when you've drafted each one, your wide receiver one, your wide receiver two, wide receiver three, and wide receiver four. And you'll see that the two most optimal starts through six rounds of best ball are running back, four wide receivers in a row, and running back, which is basically hero RB, anchor RB, modified zero RB, And then the second highest optimal start is two running backs in a row and then four wide receivers. So um, you can read about more about this later on, but basically you got to be prioritizing wide receivers early in the draft. My golden rule four wide receivers by the end of the uh, round seven gives you a little bit of wiggle room to, to, to do stacks, to draft uh, three running backs and not draft another one after that. All right. Two down. What is number three? Advanced rates from last year's best ball. So, and it basically shows each player how often their team made it to the best ball playoffs. So last year, it was 13 rounds of the regular season. We talk so often about players we like in certain areas of the draft. And I think that this was like a nice little segment and sliver of, well, you need to nail your early round picks and then some late rounders and some middle round ones that really propelled people into victory last season. What was your takeaway from seeing Dalvin Cook topping this list? Obviously, he was a first-round pick. Last year, he seems to be one of the most consistent players at his position in general. Obviously, obviously he's been selected at the 102 this year. But frequently, you mentioned the Chris McCaffrey's, the Derrick Henry's, the Alvin Kamara's. And maybe it's because Dalvin's not like attached to this like genius of a play caller, not attached to a wonder kid of a quarterback, but Dalvin Cook immediately being the player that forced most people into advancing into playoffs for best ball mania absolutely is notable. Well, I just think that it just shows that the elite running backs have the highest potential of any of the uh, early round picks in fantasy, even like Travis Kelsey dominated, dominated, and he still only had a 38% advance rate compared to Dalvin Cook's 52%. I think a little bit of this was kind of skewed because there was a lot of uh, first round running backs that had uh, season altering injuries um, like Joe Mixon, Christian McCaffrey, the other players that you just mentioned. So 
Um, I don't think that anyone's going to have a 50% advance rate this year again. Um, But I think that this is a a good opportunity to kind of spread your exposures in the first round. You don't know who's going to tear their ACL. Um, So I wouldn't just be uh, trying to only like we have Joe Mixon high. I don't think that Joe Mixon should be on like 30% of your rosters. I think that's too aggressive. I think that you want to be spreading your exposure in the early rounds because these are the players that make or break your team. This is not breaking news. Your first round pick, if he gets hurt, you're not making the playoffs. If he has a huge season, you are. Um, So I I think just spreading your exposures in the first round and not be take locked. But I think that uh, Dalvin Cook having a 52% advance rate is pushing me to have him be my 101 just because like nothing's changed in the Vikings offense. And he had this crazy of a win rate. There's a lot more moving parts with Christian McCaffrey's profile right now. Yeah, and I, but I would also say that if Christian McCaffrey stays healthy for the whole season, he'll probably be locked into the number one spot too because he was there last season um, when he did play. So, yeah, this is more of like a process conversation like you're you're talking about. And we mentioned Dalvin Cook. He was being selected in the first round at running back, but so was Alvin Kamara and teams that he was on advanced 40% of the time. So was Derrick Henry. He was around one running back and 36% for him. And then we also have a bunch of round one wide receivers. You had Devonte Adams, 41% Tyreek Hill, 41%. You still have a blend here of first round running backs, first round wide receivers. And I guess from last year, Hayden, it was mainly like, Hey, did your stud say healthy? Is he on a good team? And if so, he was an anchor for, for your team progressing. And I, I don't know if there's a bigger takeaway that we can take from that. Yeah, I mean, the first round, if you just like, look at this chart, it's like super, super wide. I mean, you had some of the worst picks in the entire uh, draft with the first three-round picks. So you got to get the first three picks right. And then I think after that, it becomes a strategy game when you're right. allocating which position. So I think the first one, it's more about uh, which players you think are going to just like either be able to stay healthy or are going to be like have these really high-ceiling outcomes. I think the rest of it is just kind of um, roster construction after that. So I wanted to hit on that point that obviously the early round picks are important, but there was also another one, Hayden, if you can go back to that list on fading what people are predicting is going to happen with people who turned out to be total studs. I mean, Josh Allen, as the first quarterback on this list, drafted in the eighth round, 37% of teams that drafted him advanced to the next round. Aaron Jones, you just highlighted. I remember the conversation heading into last offseason. Well, they drafted a running back in round two. Aaron Jones is nearing the end of his contract. How are they going to divvy up these touches? All of that uncertainty, if I remember correctly, was kind of already baked in to his conversation in his ADP <coughs> last year. And we get to that point. And then Stefan Diggs is another one, just a few more spots down. No one wanted to draft Stefan Diggs last season, despite him being one of the elite talents at wide receiver, because we all thought that we knew what was going to happen with his connection with Josh Allen in a Brian Dayball offense. And then he goes, and it's even, it's not just getting to the playoffs. It was also winning the playoffs and advancing to the finals Stefan Diggs was absolutely meaningful there. We can keep going down and down this list. I mean, Darren Waller was a player who was going around six who absolutely crushed his ADP. But really those first three names I, I, I mentioned, Hayden, there is, I think, more and more as I look into this, you need to have the awareness of the bubble that we live in, this knowledge base that we do have. I mean, fantasy football has progressed just the, the discourse of football, but we do get locked into our narratives and locked into our takes. And being able to break that 
can pay absolute dividends when we come to these GPP tournaments. My takeaway is if a narrative has dropped somebody multiple rounds, that's when it's time to buy that dip. And it's just like classic investing 101, buy the dip if, if everything's already priced in. I think that we mentioned this with Kadarius Tony on a live stream. Everyone's ranked Kadarius Tony really low right now. Every single one of his concerns about being an older prospect, the tape not being fully uh, where we want it to be, some of the weirdness with his off-field stuff, all of that is priced in right now. This is the time to draft him. You're not drafting Kadarius Tony in the 11th round like some of the other rookie wide receivers. He's being drafted way later. Like Jason Garrett as the offense coordinator, all of that stuff is priced in. That's the time to buy. I thought last year, like Will Fuller was another classic example. The injury history, all that stuff was priced in, and he still had a 33% advance rate, way above expectations, despite missing the second half of the season. Uh, when you can get somebody priced – when the narrative has dropped uh, the price tag, that's the time to be buying. There are some more interesting ones, and, and Tony kind of leads me into the next one with Justin Jefferson being number two on this list. I mean, heading into last year, we opened the conversation this way. We just had no information, especially on rookies. But every single year that we play these games, we know that rookies make a massive impact. They can be the difference to your season. Now, heading into last year, doing some self-evaluation here, like I just mentioned, I was talking about Henry Ruggs. I was talking about Jalen Rager. But if you had instead pivoted over to Justin Jefferson, who in the end played a very different role than he did his final year at LSU, and then I'm sure Brandon Ayuk is somewhere on this list as well. He's another rookie wide receiver. So it's it's not being afraid to invest in players with unknown elements to them, but it's also nailing the right ones. Or as Pat Corain has written recently on NBC Sports Edge, Maybe just don't think that you can nail the right ones. Maybe just invest all of them and, again, do a bunch of drafts and build a bunch of constructions with multiple of these types of wide receivers because, again, they can pay off as rookies. I still think that tape evaluation matters oh, more, so, more so than fantasy analysts want to believe. I think that there's – like right now, like everything's so spreadsheet-driven that if you have an eye for talent, I think that that is like one of the most profitable things that you can have. Uh, being overly confident in that could get scary, but I do think that um, I think that I want to encourage people to trust their eyes a little more and kind of factor that in because right now people are factoring that in about zero percent. And I think that uh, if you spend the time, if you do the research, if you watch enough of these guys, you'll be able to kind of pick and pick your spots on how they're used and how that's going to help or hurt their fantasy profiles. Once again, having preseason games is going to help us with that because we didn't have any of that last year. I, I failed to mention uh, Chase Claypool, who was on 40% of teams who advanced last season. That's another one. But he kind of fits in this next grouping of just late rounders that absolutely hit. You know, A lot of the discourse right now is around, well, you need to line up your rosters, your roster construction with this way, with four running backs and eight wide receivers, so on and so forth. Just nailing some of those picks – in rounds 16, 17, and 18, absolutely matters. Chase Claypool was going in round 17. Cole Beasley was going in round 17. Corey Davis was going in round 16. It is so difficult to nail those because to think of how many of those players, of those glut of players, even goes beyond how many are drafted during this time of year. But hitting on one who then was drafted as your wide receiver seven, wide receiver eight, who turns out to be a wide receiver three for the entire season – that is such a big bonus. Um, I don't know how to suggest 
people do that. That is no simple answer. If I did, I would be helping a ton of people out there. But we've been trying to do that, Hayden. We've been trying to do that all summer. And so hopefully you can take things that we say and impart that with what your opinion is as well and find some of those this offseason. I will say the last three rounds, uh, the players that were drafted more often in those last three rounds had higher win rates than the players that were only drafted like 100 times. Uh, so I think that if you're galaxy braining and you're picking players way off the beaten path, I think that you're galaxy braining too much to your own detriment. So I do think that the, the golden rule is draft players that are going to be on the field at wide receiver. So someone like Chase Claypool, I thought we can project him to be in the starting lineup, especially later in the season. And Cole Beasley was another one. Marquez Valdez-Scaling, these certified starters that just happened to be going in the last couple rounds. Give me those guys, then like the fringe guys, like a 2-2 Atwell right now. We don't think he's going to be in the starting lineup. I wouldn't draft 2-2 Atwell. Give me somebody that I think is actually going to be in the starting lineup over somebody like that, at least at wide receiver. Running back, it's a little trickier, but at wide receiver, it's the guys that are on the field that are going in the last three rounds that you that you want to be prioritizing. I think we're good to move on here of these are the good advance rates. And we've kind of defined why and where to draft them as well. The opposite end of this, if you scroll down to the bottom of the list, Hayden, is bad advance rates. And you're going to see a ton of injured players here once Hayden gets to the bottom. I mean, Saquon Barkley, Christian McCaffrey, Kenny Galladay. I mean, a lot of these players and Damien Williams opted out. Obviously, a bunch of those were early drafts. So I wanted to remove the injured names from this list because that doesn't really count. Instead, I want to look at like 10 game minimum played. And for those people that were on the field who then hindered you advancing into best ball mania, despite you spending, you know, massive underdog draft capital on them. And Lamar Jackson stands out at number seven. He was obviously, or I should say 7%. He was drafted in the middle of the second round in a lot of places. He was coming off his MVP season, viewed him as this unreal talent. He still was very good last year. Um, Hayden, we've Outlined it quite a bit in our quarterbacks ranking show if you want to go back and listen to that. But I think that this showed that we, you know, talked about Aaron Rodgers and Josh Allen at the top, that maybe you want to avoid taking that quarterback one overall this year. So one of the big takeaways was looking at Patrick Mahomes. It's it's basically the same conversation as the Lamar Jackson one. But on the flip side, Patrick Mahomes finished as the quarterback one in fantasy points per game last year. Averaged over 300 passing yards per game. Had another crazy, crazy good season. He finished with an average advance rate last year. Dead average, despite being awesome. But the price tag is just too high. It's almost impossible for an early round, top three, top four round quarterback to pay off when he talks about when you're talking about uh, advancing to the playoffs in best ball, the price is just too high. The depth at the position is a little bit uh, w- wider now. So I think that if you're drafting Patrick Mahomes in the third round, it's going to be very hard for you to pay off that price tag. And I think that Lamar Jackson, it was the same thing with his really low win rate last year. I think that for me, this made me move Patrick Mahomes down in my rankings even more. I don't want to be drafting a, a, a quarterback until a, about like round five. And right. even if I'm doing that, it's only if I'm stacking with them. But not positional rankings, just overall ADP rankings. But because of that o- overall ranking among all positions, that just means you're not going to exit with them because, again, people will still take him in round two or round three. All right. The next thing we don't even think we need to talk about necessarily Zach Ertz. We know what happened last year. He just, I think he's on the real decline of his career. And we know just the mess of that offense. I will say for the Eagles 
as a whole, we can get up to Miles Sanders and, and Carson Wentz are, are fairly on this list. I mean, only 12% of teams that drafted Miles Sanders, despite some really big weeks, and especially when he got to the playoffs, advanced into the playoffs, and Carson Wentz was only up there at 15%. Um, I need to do a much better job of shifting my perspective of the Eagles. This time last year, I really liked them because they had finally gone and tried to get too deep at many spots. They were building the depth. Um, but so many injuries hit them, especially along the offensive line, and then we all know it just crumbled from there. So, again, if I can learn anything from reviewing this stuff, it's keep up with the times, keep up with the news, keep up with these shifting landscapes um, because it's not locked in. You don't have to be locked in to an opinion or a player or a team at this moment. That's for sure. Um, okay. Also, Ezekiel Elliott is there. Just 10% of the teams that drafted him moved on into – the playoffs, I think this is another example, Hayden, where Zeke starred on a great team, first five and a half weeks of the season, and then it got into an awful team. And I would say maybe not awful when it came to C.D. Lamb and Amari Cooper because those guys still performed with bad quarterback play, but they were in awful negative game scripts, and it kind of just tanked the production and the ceiling of where Ezekiel was being taken, which, again, was the top five or six picks last season. Yeah, when the injuries come on the offensive line, that, that definitely does matter, especially when it's like a lead offensive lineman. And that's what happened with Philly and with Dallas last year. And obviously all their win rates were massively affected. I will note that if you look at the top 20 uh, players who were on finals rosters, you see Tony Pollard on that list. And this is kind of something about uh, even if a uh, handcuff and RB insurance isn't profitable for the entire season the upside of those guys in a singular week performance is massive and tony pollard had a huge week in the fantasy playoffs that vaulted his teams into the finals more than almost every single player out there so i I don't think that we should be looking at uh these insurance guys as oh what are they doing over the uh, course of the season it's really just about a couple spiked weeks here and there you nail the timing of it an alexander madison for example If he has a huge game in week 14, and that's the only time he has a good game, that is really, really important for this specific format. It's basically a regular season and then three uh, single-game tournaments, and all it takes is your insurance guy to be active as a starter in that game to vault you uh, into where all the money is. So I think that's kind of another takeaway here, Uh, not over the entire course of the season, but in one or two specific weeks of the year. This is going to sound oversimplified. Nail your first eight-round selections. Part of that is taking four wide receivers by the end of round seven. Like Hayden mentioned, you go from Tyreek Hill, who's going as the first wide receiver, all the way down to ADP of 84, which is Curtis Samuel. So get four of those wide receivers in that span of time. Then I, again, want to reiterate, looking at this list, look who are the top two, top three of the four are in Josh Allen, Stephon Diggs, and Dave Montgomery. In terms of matchups in the semifinals, who then made the finals. Those are three players that no one wanted to draft last year. None. You had to talk yourself into it. We did a show and we talked about all three of those guys. So, question, question what's going on right now. And then to your point of Tony Pollard, if you nail your first eight picks, having those spike week players who might not be those huge contributors early on, there's a sliding scale here. We've talked about that a lot. But Tony Pollard can have that one or two or three massive weeks within the season that pushes you over the top into these big tournaments. 
Um, do we need to go through any of those bad advance rates anymore? I mean, Chris Godwin was there at 11% of teams. DJ Chark was being drafted at his peak performance from the year before. Um, he might be someone who, depending on which part you nail, if he's the 2019 version, or the 2020 version, his his ADP right now. And then you have the likes of AJ Green, Marquise Brown, Leonard Fournette, so on and so forth, who are really, really down low in terms of teams that advanced or selected them advanced to the playoffs. So, and that's where we are through four. We have one more to go. Stacking in the playoffs. Columns have been written about this. Conversations have been had about this. A lot of people now are looking at week 17 as a time to face certain opponents, stack players once you get to the final. Is that smart? So I think it's kind of smart, but I think that the two games that matter the most, the two most important games, are the two games right before the finals. And if you look at these top 20 list of teams who were on uh, Best Ball Mania 1 finals teams, 14 of the 20 players played against each other in the week right before. You had four players from the Lions and the Titans games, four players from the Bills and Broncos games, four players from the Bears and Vikings games, and then you had two players from Cowboys 49ers. And that doesn't even include Travis Kelsey and Tyreek Hill. So basically what happens is the finals rosters are going to be super concentrated with whoever had spiked weeks in the week before. So if you're trying to play matchups in week 17, the price or the player pool is already going to be super concentrated. So I think rather than looking at the matchups in week uh, 17 this year in Best Ball Mania 2 finals, I think the two most important weeks are looking for spiked weeks and spiked stacks in the two weeks beforehand. Um, perfect example of this was the Titans last year. If you look against uh, who they played, they kind of struggled in week 17, but it, or week 16 last year in the finals. But that didn't matter because literally half of the teams that were in the finals had Derrick Henry on the roster. The reason that was the case was because they played the Jaguars in the quarterfinals, and then they played the Lions in the semi semifinals. So if you didn't have the Titans stacked yep. up you weren't even getting to the the finals and basically right. everybody in the finals already had the Titans stack on the team so that's the important part is if you're looking at week uh the the finals week you're looking at a, a, con- a concentrated player pool that's going to exist in that week so you're better off looking at the matchups in the two weeks prior because you have to get to the finals and the player pool is going to be super concentrated where I think that uh you got to look at the, the matchups in the two weeks beforehand you are no longer drafting against people in your quote-unquote league with the 11 other people that drafted with you. Instead, you are now facing people who drafted same players as you, right? So I, I think that that's the people who get to week 17 that you're saying right now, the finals, it's because a lot of them had similar players yes. in week 16 because that was a massive performance almost certainly. You have, and this didn't happen last year, but you have your Alvin Kamara week. You had your Derrick Henry weeks that you're talking about. So identifying those weeks a few times in advance and then hoping you have some different players who then pop off in week 16 and week 17 might be the real advantage here. It was really interesting. Last last year, uh, Alvin Kamara in the, in the finals had that huge game where he scored five touchdowns. He was the only, the, the, the uh, Justin Herzig, I believe, was the only team in the finals out of the 50 teams that made the finals with Alvin Kamara, because he had two bad games in the two weeks prior compared to Derrick Henry and David Montgomery and some of these other running backs that really popped off. So that was just like a weird thing is just all those Alvin Kamara teams that crushed all got eliminated because 
he had two down, relatively down weeks in the two games prior. So like you said, uh, in the best ball finals, those teams are going to look very, very similar just because of the way the structure has worked. So uh, with that being said, if, you, if everyone is already stacking those week 17 matchups in the, in the first place, you're not really creating much of an advantage. I think that the two weeks before the finals are the ones that you should be stacking. And I I wrote a column on like the easiest schedules about this. The 49ers come to mind. The Rams have a great schedule in the first two weeks. Um, so you can go read about that more. But I think that the the narrative should be looking at the first two weeks of the finals or of, of best ball playoffs rather than the actual finals matchups. Is it worth stacking and trying to think of this question as I ask it, is it worth stacking two teams that could have the highest point totals that week? I think you might've written something about this. Like in week 15 last year, 14 of the 20 best players played against each other in week 15 last season. Like, is it best to predict, Oh, this game's going to have a total of 54 that week. We want both sides of it. Like we want to have, let's take, for example, an AJ Brown, Ryan Tannehill and Derrick Henry. And then whoever they have, maybe it's the Jaguars in week 15. So we want to have Trevor Lawrence on the opposite side. Jack Miller has already done this for us, looking at implied oh, great. point totals by week. So if you go uh, onto Underblog or on Jack Miller 2 on Twitter, you can see it by week. So uh, the Ravens would be a classic example of their week 17 game isn't that great. They're only projected for 23 points. But the two games prior to that, they're projected for 27 points. Uh, you can make the same case for the Rams. If you're only looking at their schedule uh, in week 17, you're like, oh, I don't really like that matchup. They're only projected for 20 points. But if everyone, uh, if the Rams have two huge games uh, in weeks uh, 15 and 16, then everyone in the finals is already going to have a bunch of Rams on their team. So the matchup actually doesn't even matter. So um, that's how I would be kind of looking at it. This is like next level, next level, next level. So I wouldn't really pay attention to this too much. I would be worried that we're stacking this too much. It's about advancing uh, to the playoffs in the first place. But I will say that week 17 matchups in particular are probably overrated. All right, let's review this entire conversation that we've had. Hayden Winks, are you ready for this? Let's do my best. Even the time I was knocked out. It's the only time I shut up is when my internet doesn't work. Number one, time to draft. Answer, basically, is all the time. But keep that in mind because you can change how you're drafting players that you're drafting. Just don't be locked into the same players in week in, in round seven, round eight, round nine, round 16, round 15. That's one. Number two. Golden rule of best ball, as Head Winks has termed, draft four wide receivers by the end of round seven. Again, we start that position with Tyreek Hill, and then the end of round seven, pick 84. That's Curtis Samuel. Take four of those names. You have to when building your rosters. Golden rule number three, good advance rates and how they happened last year. Nail your first round pick, either at running back or wide receiver, in rounds five, six, seven, maybe a little bit before them, maybe a little after question the narratives that are going on right now. See what is baked in the negativity on players who could be in great offenses and greatly exceed and even be top two to three performers at their position, a la Josh Allen and Stefan Diggs and even David Montgomery for certain weeks was that towards the end of last year and also nail some late round picks who are locked into starting lineups. Don't galaxy brain it too much. Chase Claypool, you know, Cole Beasley, Corey Davis, they're all, we're locked in to starting lineups. Are we good through three so far, Hayden? Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I will say that like uh, Mike Williams would be a classic example of somebody that the narrative has gone so far. He misses all this time. He's never done it before. 
It's the same blueprint as what Corey Davis was last year, locked into a starting lineup, attached to a good offense, potentially attached to an offense that is uh, going to take another step with a better coaching staff. And you're kind of getting that, that narrative discount that he never can stay on the field. Bad advance rates is number four. And I'm not sure how much we can take from this one. Again, a lot of it so much had to do with injury, just things that I took from it. Lamar Jackson being drafted so early last year in round two as the quarterback for one, it might just be still this old adage of avoid the first quarterback selected, no matter what stack you're voting. Again, this is just a small sample. This is just one year. And instead get the Josh Allen's, get the Aaron Rodgers, get the guys that are undervalued who then can perform lights out the entire year. And again, I want to bring up the likes of Zach Ertz, Miles Sanders, Carson Wentz, you can change your opinion. You can change your stance on these players and where you're drafting them, why you're drafting them as news and things come out. And again, much more news, much more roster changes are going to happen this year. And then five, question of stacking in the playoffs, namely for the finals. You need to get there. And once you get there, you're going to have a lot of the same players that other people do. So look in week 15 and week 16 and not just week 17 as well. I think that sums it up. Yeah, it's I mean, it's a very hard discussion to have because like ultimately it's just like pick you have to pick the best players that break out. Like if you didn't have Justin Jefferson and or Chase Claypool, uh, you're going to have a tough time uh, making it to the playoffs. Um, so I do think ultimately it's still uh, picking the best players, looking at uh, historical what types of players break out at what point. Um, but beyond that, it's the narrative game. You can buy into narratives if it's not priced in, but if you're double counting that the, the players move down because of a narrative and then you're still not drafting that player because of that narrative, all of a sudden you're double counting. And that's why you get like David Montgomery yep. crashing down in ADP. Um, so that's kind of like the big thing. Well, Lyndon brings up two good points. This is the first one. Uh, the running back dead zone at some point becomes a value if people keep pushing them down and down the board. David Montgomery is an example. Heck, Hayden, you and I were slacking about this yesterday. Todd Gurley like was on some teams that advanced pretty deep into the playoffs last year. And it's not because of what he did late in the season. He was an absolute awful player late in the season. It was what he did early in the season. I mean, 27% of the teams that drafted Todd Gurley last year advanced. That's around the same as Calvin Ridley. That's around the same as Robbie Anderson. That's the same as Brandon Ayuk ahead of Deontay Johnson. Guys that were performers all year long, and it's because of what Todd Gurley was doing earlier in the year with that touchdowns that he scored. Draft Mike Davis. That's that translation for you right there. <laughs> this is the other point that Lyndon made. And again, I'm sure it's in jest. I'm sure it comes with sarcasm. But quietly, Hayden, you and I talk about this all the time. I think what we've learned is draft good players at the right positions on good team at good value. Yeah, I'm not trying to minimize that statement or make fun of it and say it, it's simple but it's the truth, and it's why, Hayden, I always talk about, and you're going to get strong cases, and maybe if, if we scroll to the top of this list, that's what I avoid. I avoid bad teams, and I avoid bad offenses, and that's going to get me in trouble with some players. But at its core, simplified, good players, good offenses at the right spots. That's not really advice. It's just kind of a fact. Yeah, I mean, none of these players in the top 20 and the highest win rates played on bad teams. Like, literally none of what them. I'm All of them. All of them were on good offenses. Uh, maybe you can make the case of Antonio Gibson at literally number 20th overall. But even then, that was like there was a huge breakout that happened with that. I will say, uh, just keep going back to it, Antonio Gibson, Justin Jefferson, I think a lot of these players that broke out, Chase Claypool, the people that watched those guys and had a lot of conviction that those guys were actually good at the game, 
they got the rewards of this. So I do think that like just too much of it is spreadsheets now. And I think that there is a, a little element of kind of we're undervaluing like tape evaluation, which like I know I'm going to get roasted for saying that, but I think that th that narrative has gone too far. That it's literally just when was your breakout age? Nothing else matters. I think that right now all of that stuff is priced into the market and the things that aren't priced in the market is like, all right, I think this guy's an actual baller because I've watched him more than any, anyone else. Yeah, and I think, again, last offseason was even more of a bubble. We talked about the exact same things on June 1st as we did on September 1st. Barely anything changed other than, you know, Antonio Gibson becoming the starter, other than CEH becoming the starter in Kansas City. There was very little else that changed last offseason. We're going to get a lot more of that this offseason, and I can't wait to break down those like specific details and, and that movement because it can make or break. And we're going to do this again next year, obviously. And the data is going to be, you know, a two-year sample versus a one-year sample. But I would be surprised if we see something like drastically, drastically different than this. All right. Some good comments as we go along. The 49ers keep getting brought up as, as a team in week 15, 16, and 17. Finish with the Falcons, Titans, and Texans. Um, here's one from Nick who's always in the chat. Thank you, Nick. If you're in the back of the draft and miss on Travis Kelsey and Zihu Elliott, do you recommend hitting wide receivers or still hammering two running backs there? He hates those spots. I have Tyreek Hill right in that mix, but usually it's like Joe Mixon, Austin Eckler, or something like that. That's how I would be viewing that. But you can pick one running back and one wide receiver. I think that has been very profitable. Uh, Jack Miller wrote about this. Historic best ball win rates, if you drafted one running back early and then didn't draft your second running back until – after uh, round six, which is basically like hero RB, anchor RB, uh, those teams have like a win rate of like 11% and the average is like down to 8%. So that's been a profitable strategy. Um, just the big thing is don't draft too many running backs. If you've drafted too early, don't draft your third in the fourth round. You drafted uh, three early, don't draft a fourth one, period. Like it just these decisions don't commit too much to a singular position, except for maybe wide receiver. And Wings, thanks for picking up my slack today. I appreciate it. We're going to get out of here before I get kicked off the internet. The first person ever to get kicked off the internet. Um, all right, everyone, we'll be back tomorrow here on the YouTube channel. While you're here, leave a like, subscribe down below. Uh, the giveaway gauntlet is back tomorrow. It is the most plus EV show out there. If you're here, have a great shot of getting $25 invested into your underdog account. Jeff Cavanaugh, who covers the Cowboys, does awesome work on YouTube as well, will be our guest so, again, this is going to be at 1230 Eastern tomorrow, NFL and something else trivia. So be sure to go and check that out. Plus, the podcast feed is always there and Hayden's columns up on Underblock. So for Hayden Winks, I'm Josh Norris. Up the villa. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Talk to you all soon. See ya.